Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this week's episode, we discuss John Carpenter's The Thing. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I am here with Jennifer. Hello. And Troy. Hello. And today we are here to discuss the 1982 version of The Thing by director John Carpenter. Now, this movie is a film that I would say at this point is regarded as a classic, certainly among horror fans. But at the time of its release, it was not received well. The box office wasn't great, but even worse than the box office, it was critically panned. The critics hated this movie, um, and we'll get into that later. But most of the people I know, I would say almost universally across the board, adore this movie. It is a favorite of horror fans and fans of science fiction. At this point, I have managed to see this movie, I don't know how many times, probably in 30 to 50 times, then that's a low estimate. I've seen it in the theater in repertory screenings now several times. So this is a movie of legend and high regard, especially amongst fans. Now, we have one of the biggest fans of this film ever on the podcast and that is Troy. I don't know if I'm the biggest fan. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's people out there that are bigger fans than I am and I would not want to meet them. <laughs> but this is my favorite movie. I have two favorite movies and it's John Carpenter's The Thing and Tarkovsky's Stalker. And I would argue that they're really similar in a lot of ways. They are kind of similar. I mean, just a group of men out in the wilderness paranoid and losing their minds and existential threat of their fate. Uh, Jennifer, you are also a pretty big fan of The Thing, correct? Yes, I am. I, I'm not near as a big a fan as Troy is because he is the biggest fan that I know. But yes, I am. I am a fan of The Thing. I've seen it multiple times. I have no clue how many either. I've also seen it in repertory screenings. The Thing is just kind of hits all the perfect notes. The, I'm, I'm a big mystery fan, so that's something that has always appealed to me as well because it's a good mystery. I am also a huge fan of this movie. I would say it is probably in my top 10 to top 20 if I made one. Um, certainly it is in my top 10 horror films of all time. My favorite film of all time, and I'm wearing the hat to prove it, <laughs> is Alien. And there are a lot of parallels between Alien and The Thing. I think the reason why The Thing 
came out in 1982 is largely because of Alien. So I just want to put it out there that I love this movie. I'll put myself right up there with some of the biggest fans, if not the biggest fans of this film. I mean, we know people that go to see this movie every time it's shown in Los Angeles. Like they can watch this movie over and over and over and over and never get tired of it. I don't know if I'm quite at that level, but I do love it. So I just want to put it out there how much I love the movie for the sake of this podcast to keep things interesting. I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate because I do think that the thing as great of a movie as it is has some issues, which I think are the reason why it is, was not well received at the time. So I'm going to bring those up. I just want to put it out there. I'm bringing these things up in this podcast, but that is not indicative of my feelings for the movie because I love the movie as we all do. But, you know, it'd be boring if we just all sat here and gushed about the movie over and over and over. So I'm trying to provide a different point of view, just playing devil's advocate for the sake of making the podcast more interesting. I'm glad you're doing that because I, I was watched this again. I was like trying the same way to like, OK, let's find something wrong with this movie. And I, I and you could struggled. Yeah, I'm struggling. So I am able to find a few tiny little chinks in the armor of this movie. You're going to be nitpicky. Sure. Well, well, we we can call it that. I'm going to be a little nitpicky. We all appreciate your sacrifice, Sebastian. <laughs> I'm throwing myself on the altar of nerddom. <laughs> and I know that if there's any horror nerds from our L.A. group that are listening to this, they will probably want to crucify me. But I just want to put it out there that this is all just me playing devil's advocate. And I love, love, love the movie. Troy, when was the first time you remember seeing The Thing? When this came out, it was 1982. So I was around nine when this came out. And I remember my dad coming home. And it was one of those things where he wanted so badly to share. He went and saw this movie and came back and was like, oh, my God, I just saw this movie. It was the coolest thing. And he tried to describe it to me. He said, like, it's about an alien, but it rips people apart and they change. And he, he was telling me about it. And he's like, but you can't see it. <laughs> and he's the, if this is one of the greatest sci-fi movies. So my dad was jazzed about it. And I remember it being a big deal. And then I wanted for years to see it. And then I think we finally, I probably finally, like most of these movies that we're talking about on this podcast, probably saw a tel the television version of it. Yeah. Which is pretty atrocious if anybody out there has ever seen it. I think you can finally see it on the, the Scream Factory as an extra the Scream Factory release, but it's completely re-edited. There's, there's narration that goes over it. I think I finally saw the VHS version of this probably when I was about 11 and loved it immediately. Jen, what's your first memories of seeing John Carpenter's The Thing? It was definitely on VHS, and I was probably around the age that Troy was as well. That was when I was really um, watching a lot of horror. I was basically going through everything at the video store. And I re remember, you know, seeing this cover, obviously. I don't think I, you know, at that time I was young and I don't think, I mean, I, I was, Halloween was one of my first super scary nightmare inducing horror films, but I don't think I had the understanding about directors and thing, you know, like I wasn't like, oh, I want to see another John Carpenter sure, film or course, anything yeah. like that. Cause I was just a kid. 
Yeah, I remember. I, I remember seeing it. Uh, it was. I, it wasn't. I don't feel like it. I don't. I don't remember it playing on TV a lot. But I, I, I definitely saw it on VHS. I did not see this in the theater. I would have been old enough. I was seeing. I'd seen Alien in the theater. I was twelve years old when this came out, and I th- wanted to see it. I was curious about seeing it, but. What you guys probably don't remember is that the advertising for this was very mysterious. Like, all you knew is that John Carpenter directed it, and he had done Halloween, and it was scary and had some sort of monster in it. And they, you know, you never saw any of the monster in any of the trailers or anything like that. It was all sort of selling the, it could be anyone and for whatever reason, I didn't end up seeing in the theater. I mean, I I would read movie reviews at that time, and this got panned. So my first impressions of it being in the theater was that it wasn't a good movie, and so I didn't get around to seeing it. But then that year, later that year, it came out on cable, and all of my friends and I watched it immediately, and we were like, this movie's amazing! Like, we, you know, because when you're a 12-year-old boy... This movie is like the greatest thing you've ever seen. So it was sort of always in my mind, this cult film in the sense that it wasn't something that people were into when it came out. And then when it hit cable, every kid I knew was in love with the thing. And, you know, I had friends who are like Troy, who are into gore effects and makeup effects. And, you know, all of them just loved this. This was like the holy grail to them. So... That's my experience with the thing. And that feeling has only increased over time. It was sort of like pretty much everybody got on board right away once it started being shown on cable. And then by the time you got to the 90s and the 2000s, it's just thought of as this classic, very similarly to like Blade Runner. Everybody thought Blade Runner sucked when it came out. And then 10 years later, in that case, because of a director's cut. But later on, everybody's like, oh, it's one of the greatest science fiction movies of all times. So let's just kind of talk about the atmosphere of what 1982 was like as well. Because I think, you know, when when kids saw this movie, they fell in love with it. When people our age saw this movie, eventually, when it came out on home video and on cable, everybody loved it, yeah. right? But when it came out in theaters, it's first of all, 1982 is like an infamous year of so many great blockbusters happening. Yeah. It, it's like the Star Trek II came out and E.T. and Poltergeist. Like all these films were coming out in 1982. They always kind of compare this to or use the the E.T. Yes. You know, the friendly alien as as why this didn't work. But I don't know if like you can really pin it on E.T., because Alien was such a big hit, and this obviously was definitely trying to coast on Alien's coattails. Yeah. And it, it should have worked in the context of everything that was happening during that time, but I, I think it's a it's a little too uh, narrow to, to just say, well, people liked friendly aliens. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because that's sort of become the accepted story. And the reason why that's the story is because it came out like two weeks after E.T. So it was like in really close proximity. I think it's fair to maybe say at that specific moment in 1982, the zeitgeist was certainly not in its favor. But you can't really lay all of that. You can't say that that's the reason why it didn't do well. I think John Carpenter has kind of adopted that narrative 
But I don't really think that's the real story of why this didn't do well. But we'll get into it. Just very quickly, it's a remake of a 1951 movie, The Thing from Another World. It was produced by Howard Hawks, who sort of got the credit for the film. I forget the name of the director, but Howard Hawks is usually given the credit. Apparently he ghost-directed it. Like Howard right. Hawks actually ghost-directed this movie. That's kind of... Chris. Christian Nimby, Nyby was the director, but anyways, that's that's the 50s one, which is not really, it, the 50s one doesn't have very much to do with the original story anyways. It's, you know, an adaptation of a story, a uh, short story, Who Goes There, which I have read and does kind of adhere pretty closely to this version. The 1951 version is is a fun sci-fi horror movie if you like that era of sci-fi. It's not really my era, but it, it has a lot of similarities to this movie, except that the creature in that is just a guy painted green or something. It's got some good theremin music in it too. Yeah, but John Carpenter was a fan of that movie. So when he took the job to direct this, he was hoping to honor that. He was reticent to take this job because he didn't think that that movie could be topped. You know, John Carpenter's from that era, so in his mind, the 1951 movie was really great. I think he topped it, but... He was a Howard Hawks fan. Like, he was it was like a learned everything and sort of adopted his style from a lot of Howard Hawks movie, like um, Assault on Precinct 13 is kind of a Howard Hawks exactly. type of Western. So... He comes from admiring his style, but that's, I think that's pretty much about it. This had been kicking around in development since like the early 70s. It had gone through a bunch of different hands. At one point, Toby Hooper was going to direct it. And apparently his version like took place largely underwater and nobody <laughs> liked it. Um, so it had been kicking around for a while. And then it finally, after Halloween was a huge success. No, actually before Halloween, there's some shots of the, the movie the original thing in Halloween. So, cause he had known that he was going to be up for the job basically. And apparently he had watched the Howard Hawks movie a bunch of times before he made Halloween just to sort of, you know, capture some of that intensity or whatever. So it was on his mind. So it did seem sort of manifest destiny that he would end up directing this. I, I wasn't aware that he already was up for the job possibly by the time he was directing Halloween. I knew that the, this was in development for years, like pretty much since Alien, they were trying to get this going, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, he may not have signed on officially, but it was sort of like on his plate and people okay. were people were looking at Halloween to see how it did to to see if he would be the right guy for the job. And once it did really well, they pretty much were sold on him being a director. So it was sort of a little bit of both. Yeah, I don't think he had been officially signed on to it but he was definitely in the conversation so this movie takes place entirely in antarctica at a american research station but before we get there before we even get to the title we are given a quick shot of a flying saucer flying through space and heading towards earth it goes into the atmosphere and sort of starts burning up so we're pretty much told right away that this is an alien story, even though we're going to find out that that spaceship crashed, I don't know, like a million years before the start of this movie. A hundred thousand years, possibly. It's a pretty cool flying saucer. I think it looks good. Oh, yeah. No, I think the saucer looks great, especially for the time 
Yeah. But still holds up. It's a it's a model. It's a scale miniature. It's a great opening, you know, having this saucer come in and burn up. You know, it sort of gives you a bit of information before the title comes on. Yes, the saucer looks great, but I was just thinking about how awesome the title sequence is. Like, just that is so iconic. And it's so, like, even watching it today, like, you've seen it so many times. It's just... It's it's so well done. And they did it the same way as the the 50s one where they they actually had like a cutout of it. Yeah. And they had like some black plastic that they melted to have the light shine through with some smoke effects. I do love the saucer and everything. As a kid, I really loved it. But putting my nitpicker hat on (laughs) and being sort of a writer about it. It does give it away that it's an alien. They could have played up that, is this an alien? Like there could have been a more mystery as to what the creature or whatever they were dealing with was. But it does sort of put a very firm stamp in the ground that like, no, it's an alien. We're dealing with an alien. That's pretty nitpicky. You're going to have to push these a little harder. I'm going to have to do better than that. (laughs) Yeah. There's enough mystery going on in this film. We don't need to. I don't think so. I don't think so. (laughs) I think it could be more of a mystery. No, I like it. I love it, of course. But... You know, I could see going another way with it, is all I'm saying. I mean, that'd be interesting, but yeah, I agree with Jen. Like, this movie rides on mystery, so... Starting right into the movie after we get our titles, we have this helicopter chase where there's a helicopter going over the snowy wastes of Antarctica, and it is chasing after a husky. And there is a person in the helicopter wearing these really sick goggles, and he's got a rifle, and he's shooting at this husky and chasing the husky across the snow. It's really mysterious. (laughs) It totally grabs you and pulls you right into it. I think it's actually kind of brilliant because if you're an animal lover, you're like, why is this asshole shooting at this dog? Mm -hmm. So it's a great way to get you right into the movie. I agree. And even though I, you know, have seen this multiple times and know why uh, seeing it today, I still am like, Ah, the dog, you know, it's still like you're still, I'm still bothered by it. Yeah, it's no, it definitely pulls you in. You're like, what is happening? Why is he trying to hunt this poor animal who's just running through this wasteland of snow? There's a lot of dogs in this movie and they are really good dog actors. Like Mm -hmm. whoever did the dog training in this did a great job. The opening of this movie is beautiful. Right away, we're in a, a location which is, you know, the scope of it looks huge. We're, we're definitely shooting somewhere. They, they shot this in uh, British Columbia, mm-hmm. uh-huh. but, but I mean, it, it looks like you're in the Arctic, the Antarctic. And yeah. some of Dean Cundy's best cinematography right away. And these helicopter, sh- these, like, helicopter shots look incredible. And you, this dog against the white snow. But wouldn't it have been cooler if the dog was a little more black? (laughs) I'm kidding. No, this this whole opening is perfect and great. And so this helicopter arrives at this American research station. Never completely clear as to what they're researching. I guess they're just researching Antarctica and what goes on there. Now, Troy, what is the uh, outpost? It's actually in the movie, they do mention the name of the station, but it's confusing. It's something that didn't really get, I think, to be a household name until all the merchandising came out later. But it actually is Outpost 31, which 
McCready mentions when he's doing the cassette tape recording. But when you're introduced here, you see a sign at the very beginning. It's called Station 4. Another thing is I've also watched the different versions of the trailers or the teasers. And the early teaser says there's something happening at Station 4. Yeah. And then the later trailer says number 31. So even during the advertising of this movie, it was unclear. So Mark won against the thing, not made clear. I need to know what station, what outpost. How am I supposed to be invested in this outpost if I don't know which number it is? Can I just say, like you said, you don't really know what this place is or what they're doing there. I would say like this is one of the things I love about this movie. Right. I mean, there's many things I love about it, but most movies, they introduce the, the characters, the scientist characters, like out in the field, winning a Nobel Prize, doing their best research work, like on their computers. Right. You know, and showing them as these brilliant scientists, like you're introduced to these people. You don't know what their jobs are. It says United States Research Center, and that's it. And they don't even explain anything after that. You you're introduced to these people in a rec room getting drunk. And then after that, they never really tell you who they, what they are, what their roles are, what they do. You never know what they're doing, what kind of research here. Our main character is RJ McCready, who is played by the iconic Kurt Russell. And I would say this is one of his most notable roles. Um, he's got amazing hair and an amazing beard. His whole hair game in this is outstanding. Like it's yes. almost <laughs> iconic in itself. And he wears throughout this movie, he wears some really great outfits. He's got this sort of like, I don't know if it's like a Sombrero. prospector hat or something. Oh, right. And he's flipped up and he just looks super cool. And the goggles. Yeah. yeah and we're introduced to him in this scene where he is playing chess with a computer and he thinks he's going to win the game. He's drinking J&B scotch. The chess wizard. It's called the chess wizard. That's right. He thinks <laughs> yep. he's going to beat the chess wizard, but then the chess wizard beats him and he gets pissed and he pours his scotch into the chess wizard, destroying it, which is a little wasteful, I have to say. I mean, it establishes McCready as kind of a badass, but it also is like, know if the chess wizard really deserved that so strike again against the thing okay i'll give you that i will give you that because it, it was a little distracting even as a kid i was like but but what are you gonna do after that like that was your one game <laughs> i disagree i i mean i kind of think okay well yes it is a little rash to like you know ruin the more than a little chat <laughs> but i think it's also saying more i think it's saying like these guys have been here for a while we don't know how long they've been yeah. there they yeah. make a reference to the guys that are in the helicopter that are coming that are chasing the dog like when they you know kind of come around to how long that they've been where they've been i mean we'll get into it but it comes something like he's like they've been there for eight weeks and that's like nothing so it's establishing to me that these guys have been at their spot for yeah. a long time and they're just like fuck it you know right. he's just like fuck it i don't care fuck the chess wizard i'm tired of playing with the chess wizard it establishes his character though perfectly it's yeah. really good character shorthand actually it yeah. kind of is pretty great and then you're right jen that it totally works in that way where you're like these guys all right, the don't give a fuck stage yeah. of their tenure here in the middle of friggin' nowhere. 
Yeah. The Norwegian pilots or the Norwegian helicopter chases the dog into their camp. And it does get a little confusing here. I mean, obviously, there's one person who's the pilot and there's the other person who's shooting at the dog. I think the pilot gets out and then does the pilot blow up the helicopter by accident with the grenade? Or is it the guy shooting at the dog? I think the pilot grabs a grenade. It slips out of their hand and the, the helicopter blows up with somebody in it. Right. I forget who tried to throw it. The nitpicky Sebastian is just trying to get another strike against the thing. Yeah, and I'm and I'm getting it. <laughs> not getting clear who it was the pilot or the shooter. It, it's not clear who's the pilot. The, well, the shooter is obviously the guy that comes out with the sick goggles because we see him laying it, leaning out of the helicopter. So I think what happens is he gets a grenade and, and accidentally throws it back to the helicopter and the helicopter blows up with the pilot in it. So he ends up killing his own man. It doesn't really matter because he's not alive much longer because he follows the dog into the camp and the station commander, Gary, he's played by Donald Moffat, who I recently saw in a movie and he got like old really quickly. Like he's kind of bordering on old here, but by 1989, he was like an old man, but he's still kind of got a little vitality here. His hair still got some red in it, but he's got these sick ass gray eyebrows that are really awesome. But he like smashes out a window with his revolver and shoots the Norwegian rifleman right in the he eye. Does, he shoots him in the eye, but it's because he already had shot um, the, here we go with the names. It's so many names. Dennings. Dennings. I'm like the redheaded guy. He already shot him. Oh, right. Because the Nor- Norwegian shot Dennings. Yes. In the, in the leg and got him down. By the way, this is going to be a struggle for me throughout the film, even though I've seen this so many times because there are so many characters. There's certain characters that I I totally can remember Would their you names. say maybe there's too many characters in this movie because i might say there's too many characters you know what's great about the movie alien which is my favorite movie is that there are seven characters and i can name all the characters in alien off the top of my head and i think most people can anyone who's seen alien a few times can probably name all seven characters and differentiate them this movie does not do that as elegantly, let's say. Okay, I'll I'll give you that as one of your nitpicks. Yeah. It, there may it may be a little bit too many, but uh, I'll say this like it did come off to a, a an even 12 and I think they were kind of Bill Lancaster may have been the screenwriter trying to go for like a Agatha Christie yeah, 10 tr- little Indians. Yeah. Maybe you're right. It could have been a little bit much, but in the original story, it was something like 35 people. At least it came down from that. Well, and I honestly think that once you get into the movie, there's only a couple of guys that I feel are really hard to remember. Most of them you do remember. Yes. They give them enough of a moment. If you don't remember their name, you remember something they did or something happens to them that's memorable. So in most cases... I think they do end up distinguishing themselves with very little to go on. So I give the actors a lot of credit because the actors are all great. And for the fact that there are too many characters in the movie, I think it's handled pretty well. And unlike Alien, it is deliberately vague as to whose job is what. So it's you're just you just have 12 men. They're all pretty. They're not all pretty. That's all male sure. cast. There a lot of them are middle-aged or over the hill and 
they're pretty kind of brilliant. This feels like you you just got dropped down into like an Alaskan fishing lodge. Yeah. Not a science research center. And there are no women, zero women characters in this entire movie, which I think might have hurt it a little bit. It probably did. And there's a, a little bit, a little tiny layer of misogyny, but I would I would say that it works for the story because these people are again, like probably not wanting to be a part of society. Totally. And I think it works fine for the story. I don't, I think it hurt the movie commercially. Probably. But I, you're never going to see that again. And I love it. I love that this is like an all male cast. And they're, except with the exception of like McCready and Keith David, Childs, most of these guys are out of shape, overweight, older. There's pretty much zero sex going on aside from McCready and his hair and his beard. Like that's pretty much <laughs> the only sexiness you're going to get in this whole movie. Which I, I would, I'll give you that. I think that probably could have hurt it, even though I think it's amazing that it was cast that way. The opposite of sex appeal is what you're getting in this movie. You can almost smell the farts that have oh settled in to that that's place. That's all I could think about was how bad that place smells. Like, that's what I was thinking. I was like, those men, they're just being gross. Men are being gross, gross, gross there. And no one's like trying to rein it in. The story opens up describing what this place smells like. The, uh, the original story who goes there, it says this place smells like sweat and dirt and filth and rotten air. That's the first way that you're introduced to it in the original story. So I think they kind of nailed it, <laughs> introducing you to these, these men. Okay, so after this, the, the, the guy that takes care of the dogs named Clark uh, takes in the husky and, um, you know, the guys tend to uh, poor Bennings, who's been shot. And we get sort of, you know, a little bit of setup with the guys. But they immediately uh, want to find out what's going on with why this Norwegian basically attacked them. At one point, I think somebody makes a joke like, what are we at war with Norwegian <laughs> Norway, Norway now? Yeah, yeah. I think that's Nalls, played by T.K. Carter, mm -hmm. who's a, the cook or something. And he's this cool black dude that skates around on roller skates and listens to... Uh, listens to Stevie Wonder. Yeah, listens to Stevie Wonder too loud, much to the anger of uh, Dennings. It's Bennings. Bennings. It's B as in boy, Bennings. Bennings. <laughs> yeah, whatever. We're going to have to have a little leeway with these names. <laughs> and I've got them like right here next to me. And I'm still like, bleh, bleh. George Bennings. Well, Bennings is, and Bennings is like to his you know credit because he's, he's like, I, like so much happens to Bennings, you know? And he, Bennings is like, he's saying to Nalls, he's like, could you turn it down? He's like, I got shot today. And I'm like, yeah, he did. He like totally, and he took it like a, like seriously, like a man. He's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah, I'd be crying for a week. And then he's like kind of like whimpering a little bit as, as uh, Doc's stitching him up and Doc's like busting his balls about it. He's just like, oh, you know, it's only four stitches. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, it's such a, a man movie. And I'm, you know, I'm totally here for it. A weird detail that I, I always find strange about Doc, who's played by Richard Dysart, He's got a nose ring yeah. and he's like this yeah. balding middle-aged man. You just don't picture that kind of guy with a nose ring. And I don't think I ever noticed that until it, it came out on digital. You know what else I noticed when I, when I first got the Blu-ray of this, like the, the remastered one, Doc also wears uh, a G-string. 
when they come wow. there's a there's a scene where they all come running out in their underwear when he comes out in his underwear you're right troy you're totally right he wears yeah. those skimpy like speedos panties hot man panties yeah he does you're right manties. when they all manties yeah. when they when they pull the fire alarm or something later and everyone comes running out i'll have to revisit that one later oh man i'm so glad to have this in hd i can finally see <laughs> copper's g his speedos <laughs> so they want to figure out why this Norwegian attacked them. So McCready, who is the pilot, takes off with Doc to go check out the Norwegian station. And the, a weird little moment here that I'm going to nitpick is when they're going to get in the helicopter, uh, the character of um, Palmer played by David Clennant, who's sort of like a, I don't know, he's like a burnout hippie type of character. He smokes pot and he thinks he's the one who's like, it's aliens right away. But he's like, oh, McCready's going to take the helicopter. And like, they, they kind of question McCready's helicopter skills, but that's his job. Why are they questioning McCready's helicopter skills? No, they're not questioning his skills. It's because the, the weather's bad or the visibility or something. Oh, okay. That was like, they, they weren't, it wasn't his skills, but they were like, he's going to take it up because I, I, I think it's not good. Like it's not, the visibility's not good or something. It was, it was had to do with the weather. Is that right, Troy? Yeah, that's right. Number they, one uh, fan. They were concerned. Okay. <laughs> McCready was like, I don't know. And, you know, you're going to get a whiteout. You, you can scratch off a helicopter pilot if we go out in this. And then they say, no, no, we, we got to go out. We can do it. You're a good pilot. You can do it. So they. Well, I'm going to cut all that out because that makes <laughs> me look stupid. <laughs> so they go to the Norwegian base and they find it completely in shambles. This is where we're first getting some glimpses of the incredible effects work of Rob Bottin. He was a young man when he was hired to do this, and I think he knew this was going to be his magnum opus, and he almost, like, he got sick while doing it, and he just completely almost had a nervous breakdown. It was apparently really hard on him. He was also, like, he 20. Was 22. Yeah, 22. 22 years old. He'd done The Fog, and right. he, was, he was a kid, basically, when he did The Fog, and then built this relationship with with carpenter and he was like i'm giving this huge big budget project to you and he killed it but oh it, my you're God. right it, it almost destroyed him because he was so under pressure at such a young age and you can see it on the screen you see why the the, the practical effects in this are incredible possibly one of the greatest They're legendary maybe the greatest of all time yeah i would say no they're amazing they still hold up too. Like they still look incredible. Legendary effects. We'll we'll get more into detail when we get to some of the real show-stopping scenes. But at this point, we're just seeing the a bunch of dead Norwegians. There's one who's like frozen in his chair, and he's cut his wrist, and you can see the blood's pouring out of his wrist, but it's frozen. They find this sort of fire pit full of corpses, but Doc notices that one of the corpses is like, is that a human? And what they end up doing is they end up bringing the this malformed humanoid that they find in this charred station and they bring it back to their own, which is probably their first and biggest mistake. I'll just say again, with the makeup effects, they're also, there's hero shots of them where they're close up, but the way they're lit is it's still, you have to kind of strain your eyes to see what it is that you're looking at. And I remember as yeah. a kid, I loved that. Like you mentioned the guy with the, um, the slit wrists and the throat, you knew what it was, but it, 
still was confusing as to what is he holding in his hand? Like he's holding a razor and the frozen blood. Like the way these makeup effects are lit are doing them even more justice. Well, I think the whole movie sort of operates that way where you don't always know what you're seeing. And it, yeah. and it that's its strength, I think. Similar to Alien, because I think Alien did that too, but I think it's even more uh, utilized here where you're constantly sort of trying to figure out what you're looking at. And I think that's part of what makes this so scary. And that applies like through to the monster and everything. Yeah, totally. Still, even today watching this and again, like seen it so many times i'm still just like don't take that body back with you don't do it (laughs) (laughs) so they bring it back to the american station and we get this great scene where you know we're looking at this amazing rob botine disturbing creation it basically looks like a couple of people fused together but with all this other crazy shit going on and we would get this great scene where Blair, who's the biologist, which I, I thought he was like the doctor. I'm like, who's the doctor? Is it the doctor or is it Blair? Because they both would sort of do do doctorly things. But yes. he performs an autopsy on the remains. This is the makeup that's got like a, a human head that's sort of stretched almost into two yeah. heads. Yeah. It just yeah. looks so imaginative. I actually remember seeing a picture of that. I think my grandmother showed it to me in like 1981 because she knew I was already getting interested in makeup and stuff. And she, it was this big article in the newspaper, like this new movie's coming out. It's going to have these amazing makeup effects. And there was a big color photo of that. So that was kind of early marketing for this movie was that one effect. It's just this brilliant looking stretchy face. Yeah. It's really memorable. It really sticks in your subconscious. It's such a gross autopsy in the best way, but it's just like, I so feel for Blair. I mean, and you know, it just smells too. That's the thing when they bring it in and they're like unwrapping this thing, everyone's just like quivering their face and they're just like, oh, you know, like gross. And, and there's Blair having to hack away at it. I mean, I'm sure as a biologist, this is like also delightful for him, but I'm just like, "Oh, oh, this is so gross. And it's so gross in the best way. I mean, kudos rob routine is is amazing it's just still just holds up as being so disgusting yeah there was a there was apparently like gallons giant barrels of ky jelly that they would just slather these things on they went through gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of this stuff just because every time you see these effects they're just glistening and dripping just goo just gooey gooey gooey. and and we should say that blair is played by the immortal wilford brimley the immortal wilford brimley and a really fun game to play is (laughs) to look up how old wilford brimley is in this movie and compare your own age to him i have far uh exceeded his age in this movie. <laughs> I remember you playing this game. Well, how old is Wilford Brimley in this movie? He's like 48 or something. Yeah. No? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This was, this is a game that Sebastian and I play all the time. And, and um, how old is Wilford Brimley in cocoon? Like, right. yeah. yeah, that game. Or just, or just anything like we were watching something with Ernest Borgnine the other day. And I was like, I bet he's younger than you are. But, you know, with, Wilford, like... <laughs> but with Wilford Brimley, you're always, every time you do it, you're shocked at right. actually how young he was. 
right? Yeah, wait a minute, he was 35? Right? Yeah. <laughs> He's just one of those men that like just like looked a certain age forever. Like yeah. he aged quickly when he was like a kid. You know, he just looked like a grown adult. He looked 40 when he was 12, probably. But he's amazing in this movie, and this is one of his signature roles, at least in my mind, as Blair. But he finds a set of normal human organs in the corpse, which gives us a little clue as to what's going on. After this, what happens is the character of Clark, played by Richard Mazur, who's a character actor that you've probably seen in a bunch of stuff, and he's sort of this sad guy with a beard who takes care of the dogs, but he takes the dog that's come in and puts it with the rest of their sled dogs, so they've got this cage full of huskies. And as soon as he leaves, the dog that he's brought in, there's this great scene with the dog sitting there, and all the other dogs are kind of weirded out by the dog, and then they all start to growl at it and you hear this noise and the sound design in this is also great. Like the sound when the alien sort of appears is awesome. And the dog from the Norwegian camp metamorphoses into this alien creature. And it's not just an alien creature, but it's an alien creature that's sort of lashing out with tentacles and all sorts of things to get the other dogs because it's sort of assimilating them into itself and it's just some really amazing, disturbing special effects work. The timing of this is is so good because they, they sort of drop these clues. And if you haven't, you kind of maybe starting to figure out what's going on by them. But then they drop this bomb and what you see exploding on camera in the scene is just I think would catch anybody off guard yeah. for seeing this the first time. You kind of get that this thing's like maybe a shapeshifter or it's kind of doing some weird things. But this dog scene not only tells you right in front, like everything that this, what this alien does, but it's just this incredible sequence and it does so much. Like you said, there's, it's squirting stuff at some of these dogs. There's arms breaking, its face rips apart. We'd never seen something like that until when this the movie. face rips apart. It's so disturbing to me because when it opens up, you see a dog skull inside, and it sort of yeah. falls out. For some reason, that is what really gets to me. I mean, it's horrible because you know all the other dogs are freaking out and, yeah. and suffering. And you said that the sound design. There's like when they come back, when everybody's finally gets into the room. And this now you're just seeing this goopy mess that kind of looks like a hairless dog with tentacles stretched out everywhere, and which is actually at this point that's that's a Stan Winston effect. It's the only thing that Stan Winston had in the whole movie, just that one dog, that one element of this scene. The sound when it screams is like this weird dry ice squeaking noise or something it's just amazing it's so blood curdling and it's only because i've been seen this movie so many times and i think i know a lot about it but i do notice in that one shot that you're talking about when it's the stan winston creature i can tell that that sort of lead dog head is a hand puppet yeah <laughs> like you but i mean it's still awesome i'm not i'm not offering that as a criticism but it i can sort of tell but it's it's a great hand puppet it's really cool that whole scene is just, even after seeing it multiple times, is still just, whoa. And the editing, too. The editing in this movie is great. The way it cuts around these sequences. 
Yeah. And like Troy touched on, it's um, it's definitely at this point, because we've seen the autopsy, we've seen like they're paying a lot of attention to this one dog who hasn't gone to the kennel yet. Yeah. So there's like, you know, there's a lot of shots of him. There's also a, a, a shot where right before this happens, like he goes into uh, someone's room and you just see the silhouette of the yeah. person. Oh, that's right. Glad you brought that up because... I just learned this yes, uh, yesterday, and I never. This is one little trivia piece I'd never known about the thing. So, at an early age, I always, I deduced it down to figure out that that's Palmer. So you see the dog wandering around camp, right? Right. And before this big uh, sequence, this changed uh, metamorphosis scene happens, it, it wanders into a room, and you see a silhouette of somebody turn around. Yes. And look at the dog and that yeah. clues you into like something has happened they uh apparently they got the guy who played palmer to do that silhouette and it looked so much like palmer that they said okay we, we have to put somebody else in there and they actually got dick warlock oh wow. Oh, okay so michael you're myers. seeing michael myers turn around and be brushed by the dog I, I didn't think it was Palmer. I thought it was um, Richard Miz or Clark. I thought it was Norris who ends up being the thing later. I, I mean, it's an intentionally supposed to keep it vague yeah. at that moment. Yeah, you're not supposed to know who it is. Or, no, yeah. you're not. That's why they got somebody else who wasn't even part of the cast to do that silhouette. That's but, why they got Michael Myers to do it. Because yeah. no, one, no one was going to see that coming. So what happens here is this... The alien asserts itself and is attacking all these dogs. They hear the dogs crying and the guys all pile in and they see what's going on. And McCready torches the dog, right? Oh no, it's Childs, Childs actually. The character of Childs who is played by the great uh, Keith David. You know, he's this sort of gruff character and, you know, he'll play into the end significantly, but sort of Childs is sort of set up as like, Kind of the, I don't know if you'd say he's the asshole, but he's sort of like the most hard-assed of them all. Like, Childs doesn't take a lot of shit. And um, Childs uses a flamethrower to incinerate the creature, and it's this amazing creature tries to escape up into the ceiling, and, you know, you see it metamorphosizing, just claws coming out of it. It's really, really cool. And so they bring this burnt corpse back, and Blair does another autopsy on it. And that's when he learns that it can perfectly imitate other organisms. And he's, you know, he's like, this isn't dog, this is imitation. And he does it in that great Wilford Brimley <laughs> mm -hmm. voice. Uh, just back to Keith David. Like when I saw this movie, I was a sort of an instant Keith David fan. He's really badass in this. Loved this guy in this movie. And I'd say it's like his best performance, just even the subtle things that he does in it. And after I kept, looking for him in other movies and kept, you know, every time I saw him, I was like, oh man, it's Keith David. And he just never quite hit what he did in the thing. Yeah. And like for decades, it was just like, well, what's Keith David up to? When am I going to see him again? And just would kind of have these roles that Carpenter cast him again and they live, you know, was he in any other Carpenter movies? He's, he's pretty remarkable and they live. Like if there's any role that he almost matches what he does here, it's that one. Yeah. Keith David's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he's still like he—he's constantly working. He's a definitely kind of a character actor. He's got this great voice. He does actually does a lot of voice work. I think he did video games and stuff. Right, his voice is amazing, so that makes sense. 
So one of the things that they had recovered from the Norwegian site are a bunch of videotapes. And if you're, you know, a fan of old videotape technology, we get some, you know, cool old uh, giant VCRs. They're, you know, they're watching like shows at one point and stuff like that, you know, that have been recorded. But on these tapes and other forms of data, they learned that there was this site that the Norwegians were going to. And they see like footage of the Norwegians digging something out of this excavation site. And McCready and Norris go to check out this excavation site, which turns out to be a giant alien spacecraft. And for the giant alien spacecraft, we get a pretty nice matte painting. But I'm going to bring up another little nitpick here, which is you introduce a giant alien spacecraft and we don't really go into it. We just see it and that's it. And then they find a smaller dig site near there and it's like a human sized dig site. And then they find another creature in that. Yeah, I'm just going to, okay, nitpicker. I'm, I'm just going to say <laughs> that this matte painting is done by legendary Albert Whitlock. He's like, at the time, was one of the best special effects matte painters in the world. I'm not criticizing the painting. I'm criticizing... That you don't go into it, into the ship. I, yeah, I, I feel like this is unnecessary. This whole trip to the alien spaceship is not necessary because all they do is they end up finding another creature in the ice. It just gets them another creature, basically. And you'd think that, like, at this point, like, well, don't bring that one back. You've already, like... <laughs> I think it's an unnecessary trip. Like you could have easily had not included this in here. You could have just seen the Norwegians finding it on the videotape and seeing like, oh, they found a spaceship. You don't, we didn't need McCready and the other guy to go to this site and find another alien. I'm kind of right. going to side with the nitpicker on this one. Because at this point they hadn't destroyed the original body that they brought back to the camp. So they still had, they destroyed the dogs. Right. So the dog's gone, but they had this other one that they brought back. Now they're bringing back a second one. Right. If you needed another creature or you need the creature to still be there, just don't destroy all of the dogs or whatever. I mean, you could have just written it in a way that you didn't need to go get another creature. There's not much gained from going to the alien ship other than you see a cool matte painting. I'm trying to think of like what you could get out of this scene. It does sort of give a, a visual explanation that this thing was willing to go to sleep in the ice. Yeah. Which sort of gives you a, a precursor to what can happen at the end. That's true. Yes. And, you know, it sort of starts the idea here that, you know, the creature could assimilate all life on Earth if it gets out. You know, we're no. sort of setting up this sort of paranoia, which Blair picks up on because he's doing research on his own. You know, he's has this really crude by today's standards computer system that's charting what would happen if the the alien, you know, whatever DNA molecule or whatever assimilated another, how quickly it would spread out all over Earth. And I think they determined that it would take... Uh, 27,000 hours. 27,000 hours and all of Earth would be taken over. This little computer uh, simulation that he's on, you're not going to nitpick that? Because I would, this is would be my nitpick. Well, no, just make it your nitpick. Don't okay. say it would be your nitpick. <laughs> make it your nitpick. You're supposed to be the asshole nitpicker in this. <laughs> we can both be the asshole, Troy. I was always a little bit distracted by this scene. I mean, you you do need this is this is your uh, exposition scene in yeah. here, 
right? And they need to give you a little bit of a, a visual helper. But I always wondered, like, does, did Blair sit there and like build computer graphics and write this little simulation program with these cells copying each other? And how much time did he spend? Dude, you don't know what Blair's doing there. That could be like just part of his rig. Like he's doing all sorts of crazy shit with microbes and stuff. He's a biologist. That could just be a program he has. Are you trying to doubt Blair? This is this is Blair. We don't know what Blair's capable of. He, and also he's sitting there with a, a little stopwatch too, which is all interesting. I, I think it's all kind of unique to his character that he's basically, what has he got? Like a bottle of vodka, a stopwatch, yeah. an alien computer simulation program that he's sort of cobbled together on a on a Radio Shack computer, mm -hmm. and then he's got a gun in his drawer that once he's decided, like he just kind of shakes his head, ah crap, <laughs> and he opens up the drawer and he's got a a revolver that he decides he needs to finally get out of his desk drawer that's been sitting in there. I like it because it really sort of sets up that Blair's going to lose his shit over this because mm -hmm. he's looking at this thing and he's like, oh, no. I feel like at the age I'm at right now, because I'm so close to Wilford Brimley's age <laughs> in this in this movie, <laughs> older than him, in fact, that... Uh, <laughs> That's me. Like, I'm like, fuck <laughs> it. I'm going to trash this place. There's no, like, no one's getting out of here. And so we get this scene where, like, Blair is, like, going, like, house on all the communications equipment. And the character, poor character of Windows, who is the communication <laughs> guy, he's this guy with sort of frizzy hair, you know, who's always sending the messages that they need to be sent or whatever. He's, like, cowering in the corner. And he's already got, like, a bloody gash on his head because of, I don't know, probably... Blair hit him with the axe or something <laughs> and like Blair's just like oh no one's getting out of here he's like drunk and trashing everything I kind of related to this scene more than any other scene yeah it's a, it's an awesome scene and it does you know give you the sort of necessary desperation of what could possibly happen but it's great because he undeniably really kind of goes insane and he goes insane and, and it's like yeah there's definite reasoning for him just snapping uh, yeah. there's plenty of of background that has been displayed to show that i mean he was already on the edge that this is going to happen but it's also because again we're in a mystery and we don't know exactly what's going on and who's what like you don't know if this is also related to him being infected in some way with with this first you see what's happening then he goes insane but then after that it does kind of start pointing a finger at him which is interesting. Yeah. Like he's the one that sort of tells the audience how this works. Yeah. But then pretty soon after that, the finger is almost pointed right back at him as a, as a suspect. Right. He becomes a suspect immediately, which is sort of uh, unusual for a character who is also the person telling you what the threat is. They're not usually the person who's the most suspicious, but they manage to get, Blair, they like Blair's got a, a fire axe and he's trashing the the radio equipment, and uh, McCready's got to take a like table and jam it again, like against Blair as he's swinging the axe, and they eventually get him down. That he sh does he shoots he shoots at uh, Childs a lot actually, but he doesn't hit him. Yeah, he doesn't hit him. He just runs out yeah, of ammo because they all are holding tables to 
shield yeah. themselves. And they get him down and they imprison him in the tool shed. And there's this nice scene where uh, McCready sets him up in the tool shed and he leaves him with like a half a bottle of vodka. And I noticed watching this now, the continuity in that bottle of vodka. Maybe I just really want some vodka. <laughs> But it looks like half full in some shots, and then some shots it looks like there's barely any in. Oh, that's funny. And McCready takes like a swig of it before he leaves. It's like, <laughs> dude, leave the poor guy a little more vodka than that. He's going to be stuck in this shed in the freezing cold. Did you notice the, the voiceover as they're marching him up to the shed? Mm -mm. There's mm -hmm. Because I think that there wasn't a visual description of like where these places were. So they're they're sort of marching him up into this shed and and there's this obvious voiceover. They say, like, why don't we put him in your shack, McCready? He says, I don't want him in my shack. We'll put him in the tool shed. Like as they're walking him into the door, as right. if they were having mm -hmm. this discussion right about as they were ready to drop him off. I'm trying to help you with the nitpicky stuff. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I'm I'm throwing you a bone. Lame ADR. Yeah, because why why didn't they put him in McCready's shed? Lame. This movie sucks. Yeah, it was just one of those things I noticed. I've always kind of noticed early on, like that they had to sort of drop this voiceover as they're entering the room. Before this, poor Bennings gets assimilated by the creature, and um, Windows interrupts the process, and you know we see. Bennings getting sort of like wrapped up in tentacles or whatever. And then he runs out into the snow, drops down in the snow, and he's got this like creature arm and he does this horrible mm -hmm. scream. Yeah. And they burn him alive. Now, apparently, I was reading this was originally intended to be a much bigger scene, like Bennings's transformation. He was supposed to sort of get like sucked under the ice and there was going to be this big set where they were like pulling him underground and then he would pop out of the ice and be this big giant monster. But they didn't have the budget. So he ended up just getting a rubber hand stuck on him and <laughs> like burned out in the, the snow. Poor Bennings really goes through it. He really does. Bennings yeah. gets it bad. But I, I like that scene. I think he looks creepy. It reminds me of um, the 70s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes, yes. And he's like, raw, you know. It's... They used that in the trailer. That was in the trailer. That I remember scream. that specifically. Yeah. yeah. At this point in the film, you definitely are getting the, the body snatcher uh, element on top of the alien monster yeah. and it's just like it's it's two of like my favorite horror tropes is, is those two things put together it's it's wonderful this is the part of the movie where we really start to enter this who's infected who's not you can't trust anybody kind of thing and i definitely remember as a kid this is my least favorite element of the movie like i didn't really care to try to figure out who was the thing and who wasn't. I just wanted the monster to show up, you know? Like, I preferred Alien in that we just know it's a monster and it's not like, oh, now we're worrying about who is the monster and who isn't. Oh, man. Well, now I appreciate it. Yeah, this is my always been my favorite because I love I love mysteries. And so this is just like this is the sweetest plum. I agree. I love the mystery of it. But also uh, this is the kind of thing at, at a young age was uh, you kind of got it a little bit in Alien where something invades your body and yeah. then you're hosting. Yes, you're incubating, you're hosting something inside your body and you don't have any control of it. But I think even more frightening than that was the idea. And I remember th this 
both body invasion of the body snatchers the 78 version in this movie like was so terrifying not being in control of who you are what would that be like if this thing got and then your body started changing to the point where you're not you anymore that freaked me out more than anything else in any other horror movie gave me nightmares so now that this film was doing that and then to see bodies being like ripped the body horror element on top of that with it not only takes away your identity but it like rips you apart so scary you really think that you are still you and you know and that's kind of like the argument it's like you know well it's and i know it's not me i know i'm me you know and it's like how do you know anymore like once this happens i remember like uh, yeah again as a kid i would just like sit there and ponder like what would that be like or do you still think you're you until it the organism decides to initiate and and do mm. something like did is does it assimilate you so perfectly that you just you you have no idea that you've changed until it sort of activates. I feel like that's how it has to work because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. That was going to be my nitpick later is like <laughs> if this alien creature becomes you, like how does it know how to talk like you? How does it know how to like hold a conversation with anybody? I think your version of this that you're you're making up in your head makes sense. Like that you don't even really know that you're the creature. Yeah. But I mean, that doesn't really make sense either because they, it makes a whole new version, though. It's the same thing in the body snatchers. It's the same idea. All I was saying is like, I would just sit and like wonder about this stuff for, you know, hours. Like, what would that be like? How does that work? And also in the book, it, in this original story, it, it does mention that it's affecting their dreams a little bit as well, which... I don't think it has anything to really do with this version of the movie. It's just a creepy idea, and I'm with you, Troy. It's like it's it's the same thing I've I've thought about when I've seen the the body snatchers. It's the same thing like in the Stepford Wives too, where I'm like, yeah. when do you know? Like, do you ever know that you've been taken over? Type thing, you know? It's 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 just a creepy idea. Yeah, because if your if your body is infected with a virus, it doesn't suddenly change you to say like, now I'm siding with the virus. I'm going to go infect yeah. people. You know, you're yeah. still you're still trying to socialize with your friends and do whatever you can, even though the virus is now you're hosting it and spreading it. But you're unaware, completely unaware that you are now spreading. That would thing. never happen in real life. <laughs> <laughs> it's the nitpicker. <laughs> I was making a joke about the virus world oh, we live in now. Yes, 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 yes. Good. <laughs> Because Troy was making a really good uh, metaphor for our yeah. current reality. Yes, this is true. What happens around here is the doc suggests a test to compare each member's blood. So we get the idea that perhaps the blood is going to be the answer to figure out how we can tell who really is contaminated. But they go to check on the blood and whoever is the alien has already figured that out and all the blood has been destroyed. And so they have to go out and bury it and torch it so that it can't be turned into them. The scene with the blood being destroyed also starts pointing fingers at a couple of other characters, too. So now you're starting to get this real whodunit mystery unfolding even more. With who had access to the blood. That's the whole, like, you're saying, finger pointing, because it's like, well, you had keys, and sometimes you took the keys, and, you know, all of that. Well, and they, they lose faith in Gary, who's the, the head of the whole thing, mm -hmm. because he had keys. And so McCready is sort of given the gun, which signifies that he's taking command. 
this is just a scene with dialogue and these actors are doing just just this incredible job of starting to get short-tempered with each other and start you know accusing each other and it's really working so well now Mm -hmm. the paranoia is starting to rise you can all tell that they're already tired and bitter with each other and they've been cooped up with each other for a long time they're probably annoyed with each other already and like mccready has not slept for like days i mean i'm I'm not sure the other guys too but i mean he remarks on that too like i mean it's like there's been no one's sleeping it's everyone's kind of drunk it's and everyone's at the like their wits in so yeah since basically since they brought this thing home they they're not getting any sleep yeah. because they're constantly having to deal with these incidents that are erupting and one of the incidents is that uh one of the least memorable character in the whole movie fuchs who is a character <laughs> i literally do not remember being in the movie and i've seen the movie gazillions of times this poor guy he's just the odd man out and that you just instantly forget him he's just a guy with a beard and glasses but the this poor forgettable fuchs is found burnt outside and then you know mccready and windows and Nalls surmise that he's committed suicide to avoid assimilation well there's a, a power outage right, right. the lights yeah. go out and then everybody is suddenly like they got, kind of get split up they go searching for each other and then you you learn Fuchs, you see him light a candle and, and he wanders off. He hears a noise. Here's another of one of those great sound effects. Yeah. Somebody walks by him and makes that blood curdling yep. weird noise. And then he chases out after it. Basically what happens now is McCready and Nalls are sent out to investigate McCready's shack. Don't they go to check on Blair? And that's when Blair is like, I'm better now. Take me back inside. I'll behave and all of that. And then McCready is with Knowles. And then he says, we need to go check on my shack because I turned the lights off when I left yesterday. Then the lights are on. And so that's why they're going to check out his shack. But they find the burnt body of Fuchs on this outing as well. All these things happen during that scene. All happens at the same time. Yeah. But that was just the motivation for going to his shack is because there's a light on there now and he hasn't been there. And you, as you mentioned, Jen, when they do see Blair at this moment, that you, you're you pretty much on board with him being taken over. He's like, I'd like to come back inside now. I'd, I just want to come back inside. But there's that great- I'm better now. Prop. He's got that <laughs> noose hanging next to him. Yeah, like, yeah it's he's so great. cold tool shed with nothing but like a down parka- yeah. And a bottle of vodka, and he's got this noose right next to him on the table. Just hanging. And he's like, I'm fine. <laughs> no better now. I love that. So Nalls comes back, and he's all freezing cold and stuff, and he's like, I cut McCready loose because what happened was when, when they went to go investigate McCready's shack, Nalls found some of McCready's clothes on the ground, and that looks they look all torn up. And so Nalls is thinking <laughs> that McCready is the thing. So... They barricade up the uh, station. You can hear McCready outside trying to get in. They're like, we're not going to let him in. And then they hear a crash in a, like a um, like storage closet or something because McCready has found a window to get in there. They burst in there and McCready's holding a flare and a stick of dynamite. And he's like, I'm going to blow this whole place up if, you know, if you don't let me in. And yeah, so while this is going on, while there's this sort of standoff between them, Norris, who's been there the whole time, collapses. And we've sort of seen him, like, clutching his arm and stuff. Like, they've set up that, like, oh, 
he seems to have a heart problem. Yeah. And now he has suffered a heart attack. Again, commenting on the wonderful mane and beard of McCready. At this point, now it's completely like icicly from being outside. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just majestic. But um, yeah, Norris, we keep seeing shots of Norris where he's just kind of like, it seems like he's having, like you said, like a heart attack or something's going like, where he's having like, he's kind of doubled over, kind of grabbing his arm. And he seems like he, I mean, under all of this stress, it could be a heart attack. It yeah. could be, you know, but it also could be something else. So that's kind of where we are with that. Right before McCready kind of bursts in through the supply window, this, it's, it's kind of subtle, but it's, it's some of my favorite, again, like some of my favorite work from like Dean Condi and these, these steady cam shots, you know, they're trying to decide to board these things up and the camera's just kind of moving around. And then there's that great push in on the door handle that's mm-hmm. creaking and turning. Yeah. Those little moments are like why Carpenter's so good. He's definitely doing kind of Hitchcock stuff. And I remember that scene so well because it was a clip and do you remember the terror in the aisles uh-huh. that, uh, horror doc in the 80s they used a lot of these cuts in that you're also getting these uh great john carpenter synth pads happening in here you mean in nino morricone synth pads (laughs) no uh okay all right just to dispel that a little bit i i went and saw i went and saw this uh at the arrow with a carpenter in person and he was talking about the great Neo Morricone doing the score for this and how he was psyched to have him, and it was this big deal. And then somebody asked him from the audience, they said, but a lot of that kind of sounds, some of the stuff in there kind of sounds like you. And he's like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, there's a lot of me in there too. So there was a lot of filler that Carpenter did, which you can tell, it always, some of it sounds a lot like his Prophet uh, 5 noises that he's doing and stuff, but he... uh helped out with that a little bit in the soundtrack 100 percent, i believe all of that because it's like it sounds like carpenter yeah uh morricone did like all these symphonic stuff with strings and and the great one of the greatest theme horror themes which is just the bass heartbeat theme to this movie which is incredible but yeah then there's this carpenter synth noise happening all through this now what happens next i believe is the show-stopping scene of the movie. So they take Norris to the med lab or whatever, and the doc is trying to defibrillate him back to life. You know, meanwhile, like, McCready's still in the corner with, like, a friggin' flamethrower and a stick of dynamite, like, ready to set it off. But they're trying to save poor Norris's life from this heart attack. You know, you keep seeing the doctor defibrillate him, and then... One time he goes in and Norris's chest just opens up and the doc's hands go in and then Norris's chest closes in on his hands with teeth on it and bites off his arms. So Norris has been the thing or a thing this whole time and it just goes crazy. We get a Rob Bottin creature like I've never seen, has never been replicated in any way, like nobody's, I don't think anybody's ever come close to this in no. cinema history. This is one of the best horror movie scenes of all time. Yes. This yep, scene. 100%. It is up there with Alien, with the, the thing coming out of Kane's chest. Maybe even more intense because this creature is tearing apart 
Norris's body, every part of him is an alien that has its own sort of sentience. So it's trying to separate from him and the head comes off and the head just looks amazing. There's this sort of like green rubbery tendons pulling it apart. And I mean, it looks incredible. And it goes on and on. And like on it. and on and on. It's, it defies explanation. It is the closest thing I've the cinema has ever achieved in creating that true Lovecraftian, you cannot make sense of this horrible thing. And it is just so unbelievably horrifying. And it's, you know, body horror. It's, you know, all this crazy effects work. It's just, I don't even know how to even describe it. The head separates, it goes on the floor, then it grows legs and eyes. Well, a tongue shoots out of it and it's sort of right. dragging itself along with this like tentacle tongue. And like, meanwhile, all the characters are like freaking out and they're not noticing these oh, little chaos. details of what's happening. Well, and then, I mean, there's still the whole thing and McCready's still, I mean, everyone's freaking out because this is happening now, but there's still like, there's only like a couple of people that are watching at one point when it's like the head spider creature that's like going out the right. door and they're just like, oh my God. Like, cause it's just, again, seeing this so many times, seeing it today, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm holding my breath and I know how it's going to play out, but it's just that intense and it holds up that well. And it's just, as you said, Troy, it just keeps going. It keeps giving. Yeah. It's like, you don't, you just keep like, you, you don't think that it, it, it's, no, now it's going to be a head spider thing that's like scurrying away. Just to go to kind of rewind through this scene, like it's, it's also like, I think one of the best scenes Carpenter's ever done as well. Everything about the scene is amazing. There's no music at all nope. in this scene whatsoever. So most of the time in a horror movie, you would have a, some scare cues. Bringing up jump. to it something yeah. intense. You'd have some strings elevating it. But what you have in this, just go back to the beginning. The setup here is like, everybody thinks McCready's taken over. He's holding a stick of dynamite ready, with a blowtorch ready to ignite it, saying he's going to blow everybody up if they attack him. They're having a standoff. Meanwhile, you've got Doc Copper and Windows trying to revive Norris, who's having a heart attack. So there's like these two different things going on. And I didn't even notice this until the proper widescreen HD Blu-ray came out. Clark is standing kind of, he starts scooting away a little bit. And then you see this great shot, which is almost like a Sergio Leone shot, where it's this, you've got McCready and Childs arguing in, in one half of the frame. And then you've got an extreme close-up of Clark's behind and yeah. he's reaching with his hand to like grab a scalpel. Yes. Yep. And yes. you see him holding it right up in front of your face like he's hiding it. And it's this great suspense setup. So he's like ready to strike. So that could that situation could happen. And then it cuts back over to here. And that's why it takes you so off guard when Copper like takes the defibrillator and bursts in the chest caves in. And meanwhile, you only have these noises of, I was listening to this really closely. You've got this hiss of the the flamethrower which is which is like at ready you've got the little pilot light and you've got this hissing noise and then you have the defibrillator the electric tone happening and they both these sounds just start elevating and the volume starts going and then bam that's when you have like norris's chest cave in and yeah. all hell breaks loose but the the setup for that is just amazing 
like all this tension building up to that. It's a masterclass in filmmaking and so many different elements of filmmaking and special effects oh at God. the same time. So yeah, it's an undeniably incredible scene. And it's the scene that I remembered most seeing as a kid when I saw it the first time. I mean, there were a lot of things about the movie that blew me away back then, but this scene was where I was like, how did this even happen? Mm -hmm. Like, I was like, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Like, you know, like totally mind blowing. And the crazy thing is, is all the critical reactions of it were like, all the special effects are just in service of grew and gore like you see yeah. that again and again and all the the criticism of it it was too gross yeah the critics are just like it's just horrible why would yeah. anybody spend all this money to make something look so terrible they just couldn't appreciate how fucking amazing this was you know yeah which i think is another thing that worked against the film in terms of it being a commercial success but has worked for it in being a legendary cult film. Did you know the um where Copper's arms get bit off and then he he kind of stands back and he's missing his arms. They actually put a mask of Copper on a uh -huh. paraplegic. Wow. So wow. an actual man who was missing arms to look like Copper. Whoa, I had no idea. That's intense. So yeah, the way this amazing scene ends is the head has separated and become this sort of spider creature. It's like now it's an upside down head with like stock eyes coming out of the chin and spider legs coming out of it. And it's trying to scuttle away and uh, both McCready and Palmer turn around and seeing it and Palmer famously goes, you gotta be fucking kidding. And then McCready blasts it with his flamethrower. But part of the creature has escaped up through the ceiling, like because it's sort of detached and it's, you know, become these multiple creatures. We jump right into one of the other great thing sequences right after this, right? This is where they tie them up. Right, because what McCready has figured out from this, and this is another great thing about the scene, is something is learned here. McCready learns that the thing organism, any part of it will react as if it's its own organism. So even if just your finger is the thing, your finger is going to try to survive and escape the situation. So what he figures out to do is to test everybody's blood because even one cell of their blood is going to react if it's endangered. So he ties everybody up and has them cut their finger and drain the blood into a petri dish and then he heats up a needle or a piece of wire with the, the flamethrower and sticks it into the petri dish to test the blood so i mean i think it's first it's mccready does himself and he does um i think windows first mm -hmm. so he can have a helper with yeah them. so he can have a helper they both test out clean and then they, you know so they're going down the line and all the guys are tied up and they're not happy about it and they're all complaining <laughs> about it well clark's dead mccready shot, shot him which i forgot to mention in the earlier part so many other things were going on but clark did try to attack mccready right with the scalpel and he shot him. Yeah, he shot him right in the head. And so both Clark and the doc are dead and they're lying on tables. And he goes to test their blood and he tests Clark's blood and it doesn't react. And Childs is like, guess that makes you a murderer then, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> great line and great delivery. Yep. Yeah. They're actually all giving him a hard time because they think this test is bullshit. 
Gary, most of all, is the, the one who's royally pissed at this. Yeah, because they're tied up and they think like, and nope, nothing is happening. Everybody's blood has just been fine. Right. This test might not do shit. Yeah. I do kind of love like the, the mixture of reactions and emotions in the scene. Like Gary's just pissed off. Nalls is totally freaked out. Like he's, you can see him like shaking and he almost crying because all the shit that has just happened. Yeah. But you have this mixture of like Childs is obviously like also pissed off at, at McCready and nobody trusts anybody at this point. It's very well calibrated because it's going back and forth between the, the characters and like McGreedy's like, well, we'll, we'll see what we're going to see. And then he sticks the needle in like Palmer's blood and it yeah. freaks out. And yeah. so it's this jump scare moment, but it's really well done because you're not expecting it. Yeah. And the, the blood freaks out. And then Palmer, who has been revealed to be the thing, starts like th thrashing around yep. in his seat and his like face starts to melt it's just like bloody goo just coming down off of his face and all the guys who he's tied to are now all <laughs> freaking oh out <laughs> yeah and like and this to me now is kind of the most disturbing moment in the movie when poor windows gets like attached to Palmer because Palmer's head is opening up because he's the thing and it like clasps on to, to Windows's head and then he lifts Windows up and he's sort of like balancing him in the air and flailing him around and it's just such a disturbing image. And it kind of shows you like how this works now is to just sort of maul the person and get as exchange as much fluids as possible very quickly like just rip them apart sort of ravage them spill fluids all over them and then they're infected just uh just kind of a technical thing like it, it was a bit the cutting around this and because windows is obviously like this dummy that this thing is like lifting up and thrashing around there's a there's kind of just a, a lot of like awkward overdub sound effects and stuff happening. Right. There, but it's just because it was trying to create an action sequence with with puppets and stuff. You're right. It's pretty much sucks, that overdubbing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to give the movie a little bit of a hard time here. I honestly didn't notice any of that. It's still a great scene. I'm just too caught up in the craziness of it that yeah. I'm not really even noticing that kind of stuff. But you're right. The I remember that as a kid, like thinking... These people are tied up next to this body that's leaking and worms and, and tentacles are erupting from it. And they're totally helpless to it. And Windows is, or no, McCready's trying to light the flamethrower and it's not working. Yep. So that's when Windows has to blast it, but he's too scared. Yeah. And this thing just grabs him. But McCready does eventually get the flamethrower going and he incinerates the creature. Yeah, the one thing that I always thought was kind of weird is so the, he shoots the thing with a flamethrower and then this thing's on fire and it runs outside. Instead of just letting it completely burn up, he, he lights a stick of dynamite and throws it at it, bursting it into a million little pieces, which I thought is counterproductive to what you're trying to do. Right. Because now you have a thousand little thing pieces flown that may not burn up i think at that point carpenter just wants to blow shit up yeah mm -hmm. it's it raise the level of action here and have more yep. explosions which i kind of am not that super psyched about honestly like the, the, this last little chunk of the movie things start blowing up a lot 
after this. It becomes kind of an explosion fest, which is not my favorite type of movie. And and this was sort of a thing that was just done a lot in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, through to the 90s. It was like at the end of your movie, you just had to blow everything up. That was just always the way every movie that had any sort of action in it or conflict at all, like it needed to end in explosions. These Mm -hmm. explosions are epic in proportion. They're They're like mushroom cloud explosions, though, in here. This is at the point where I mean they already have resigned that they're they're not leaving here. Like this is it's just like annihilate everything. No one's getting out of this alive. <laughs> and that it's sort of funny. I was thinking about that today while I was watching it. It's, it really sort of comes into play like a little bit later. Like basically, McCready's like we just have to blow everything up, and he's like we're not getting out of here. And it's really just matter of fact, like there's no big moment yeah. of like, we're all going to die. It's just like, no, we're all going to die. <laughs> like they First, they, they have to find uh, Blair. Yeah, they're going to test him. So they send Childs after him. So there's a big, there's a big piece of information. There's a scene where they, they go and find Blair and Blair has dug a tunnel in the uh, tool shed and tunneled down deep in the snow in a totally inhuman way. Uh, and taken the helicopter parts and, and as, uh, assembled another ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a mini flying saucer, yep. like underground. They have no idea where he is. They split up and then they have to go back inside. And that, that at some point they realize that uh, Blair has completely removed the generators. So then they, they know at that point that there's no hope that... There's no way that they can survive anymore. Well, they also didn't have any hope really after Blair axed the whole communication room. There, there was no one going to come for them. They couldn't even... There was going to be a rescue team. In spring. In spring. In right. the spring, they're in dead of winter. Theoretically, if they could have stayed warm, <laughs> they could have survived. I guess, yeah. But without a generator... Yeah, they're completely screwed. Yeah. They're, and so McCready's basically like... We'll just light the whole place on fire and and live off that warmth until we're dead. For the night. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this location is a little confusing to me because they go to the f- check on the generator. They find it's missing, but it's like in this generator room or something that's like underground. It's It seems to be underground. Like you even notice yeah. like the set has like ice stairs going in. And, you know, it becomes this area where we sort of play out the climax, this indoor area, but it's Mm -hmm. underground. It is a little weird. Like, what is it supposed to be? I was trying to justify that just for myself, that when they built this camp, there was a dugout, possibly. Sure. But it is, it's strange because we just saw a tunnel that Blair had created. Right. In the snow. And this looks really similar to it. So it looks like an extension of Blair's weird alien tunnel that he built yes, yes. totally confusing so i i agree with you but it's a, supposed to be a functional part of the facility yeah but yeah it looks like it's underground like i get it maybe they put the generator underground for some reason i can make sense out of it and there are pipes and things like it it, it looks like a basement basically <laughs> it seems really counterproductive and fucking hard to build a basement in antarctica when you're just trying right. to get a shelter assembled when you could just put this shit in a in a shed, the generator shed. It just seems like a set that doesn't have a real solid explanation. Like, well, now we've got this creepy underground looking set. Well, it's confusing. You know, McCready's going to give its nulls and um, 
Gary, who are still alive at this mm-hmm. point, and he's giving them dynamite and telling them to go off into different darkened corners of this creepy underground generator. Childs <laughs> is still alive, but he's missing. He's yes. missing. Childs went and ran after Blair. You just saw him leave. He, well, you didn't even know that. You just somebody saw Childs run outside, and that's the last you saw of him. So the other guys are going off to set these explosives. And then we see Gary off in a corner and Blair appears and sticks his hand into Gary's face. And it's a really good special effect. So good. Of his fingers. The the actor who's playing Gary has clearly has this rubbery kind of mask on, but it looks really good. It's really good. And it's just your imagination. You're imagining that. Wilford Brimley's dirty hands are in your mouth, shooting tentacles and fluids up down your throat. Yeah, that would not be pleasant. Out of his palm or something. And Wilford Brimley just has this look on his face, like checking to see if the room's all right. He's just kind of looking around. Yeah. Poor Gary. Poor Knowles doesn't even get an on-screen death. We don't know what happens to him. He just wanders off down into a corner and is never seen again. The end. I thought maybe he would appear in the body of the Blair creature that comes out of the ground, but he's not in there at all. And and, another reason why they're trying to blow up the whole base is because McCready speculates that the thing is going to try to hibernate until a rescue team arrives. So, Which we got that from. That extraneous trip that the nitpicker had a problem with. That's what with. I was saying. He had to plant that. I know, Troy. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm giving you props. I I've also sided with the nitpicker on this at first, but then I was like, oh. I feel like you could have got there without going to an alien spacecraft. Your wife is telling you that you're wrong. <laughs> there are things that are dropped in that spacecraft scene that definitely come into play. All I'm saying is you didn't need that scene to reach that conclusion. You could have figured that out without that scene. Well, I'm glad that we did because this comes into play. This is a major thing later. No, it's a stupid scene. (laughs) This movie sucks. (laughs) We get these cool scenes of the Blair creature or whatever it is has gone underground. And so, you know, it's sort of chasing McCready around. And we, you know, we see the ground getting all thrown up as it's coming after him this was another thing that which was in the 80s a lot there was lots of like tremors and Mm -hmm. stuff where it was like creatures underground coming at you and they had figured out some kind of effect to pull ground up but it's cool then the blair monster well first mccready is setting up a plunger and we get a really ray harryhausen stop motion tentacle that comes out and grabs the plunger and like sucks it underground Mm -hmm. um is that like the only moment of stop motion animation in this movie? Yeah, that's it. I remember seeing cut scenes where you see more of a stop motion creature, but they cut it from the movie. Yeah, it's not in there. You can t- and you can tell, but it's not that bad. It it still no. is working pretty well in the context of this scene. And then the creature bursts up through the ground, and I remember. Uh, when we were living together in Koreatown, you had a thing action figure. You gave that to me. Oh, I gave that you, to that you. That was a present from you. Yes. I still have it somewhere, but it, it, it was one of those toys that fell apart immediately. You didn't give it to your son? No. <laughs> For him to keep in his room? I have it still. It is somewhere. Yeah, those were McFarlane's. Yeah. Those always fell apart. 
and they never had any movable parts either. There'd be like one tentacle that would move and it would <laughs> fall off if you tried to move it. But yes, Sebastian gave me a Blair monster for my birthday, I think. Aww. I believe it was called the Blair Beast. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's a big, giant um, Rob Bottin creature. It looks pretty cool, but it's not the coolest monster in the movie. So it's a little bit of a disappointment that this is... It's cool. It looks cool. And, you know, it, they're trying to make it the show-stopping form of the creature. You know, it's got like a giant mouth coming off on one side. And you can sort of see Wilford Brimley in there and all sorts of shits going on. But it's, I think it's not as cool as some of the other things we've seen. Yeah, it's a little weak because I think it's it's this giant thing and it's got so much like uh, moving parts. It's a, it's a massive puppet and it's what you would expect. Like you kind of needed to see all the different versions of things that it's changed into mm-hmm. with all the different pieces. And it's right. kind of what you would expect this to do. You sort of need it, but it's not one of the best creatures in the film. In any other movie, it would be great. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that last monster was great. But they've so blown your mind already with so many different things in this movie that it just ends up kind of coming up a little short. And I feel like this whole ending, this this little part of the climax is just kind of it's fine. It does the job. It gets you where you need to go. I mean, in fairness, the last 20 minutes of Alien aren't my favorite part of that movie either. It's okay. It's fine. But it's not the show stopping climax yeah. you might hope from a movie that's been this good well you need your hero to be up against the the boss monster yeah the big bad it's a boss fight basically yeah. but it's not much of a fight because mccready just basically like throws a stick of dynamite at it i think that's why it's underwhelming is because it this thing emerges out of the ground it looks like it's like 20 feet tall it's doing all this stuff but it's just sort of standing there shouting yeah when in, we've seen this very quickly, just just take out people one by one. He's sitting there holding dynamite and it's not doing anything at him. Yeah, I feel like this was kind of an 80s problem because I feel like a lot of movies would end with sort of they try to do the big monster at the end. But because special effects weren't up to the place they needed to be, all the monster could really do is go yeah. <laughs> like, I'm the big monster. And then the hero would just like blow it up and like McCready just says like yeah well fuck you too and throws a stick of dynamite yep. at it nah not such a great final that's no get away from her you bitch or what does uh, Roy Scheider say in Jaws like they're, they're trying to do that moment and it's pretty weak but again it's you have to have it in there it's it's part of the genre it's what's happening at the time right I'm just saying it's a lame one like come up with something better for McCready right I didn't mind the the line. I think I remember my dad thinking that was it's sort of a dad line anyway. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, get him. But, but it's like it's only two words better than like, fuck you. Like, <laughs> Maybe that would have been fine, too. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad like eat all the dicks wasn't a thing back then because I think that would have been the perfect thing to say. Like eat all the dicks. Well, the, and the thing would have. He would have right. eaten them all. <laughs> and it looks like a bunch of dicks. If this last boss battle was a little underwhelming, the final scene is classic. It's and classic. that it's is so good. The whole station is just, you know, because there's been, of course, this crazy explosion. The whole thing has gone up and a sort of uh, one explosion after another. 
and McCready is, you know, it's just sitting in this like fiery rubble and Childs wanders out of nowhere and McCready's like, you know, where you been, Childs? And Childs is like, well, I thought I saw Blair run off and I ran after him into the snow and I got lost, which is completely, completely plausible. Good excuse, because it would be really easy to get lost. We see that they need ropes set up around the camp at night to follow in case yep. they get caught in like whiteout conditions. So Child's excuse totally works for me. And, you know, McCready's basically like, yeah, well, I guess if either one of us is the thing, neither one of us can do anything about it. So we might as well just sit here and drink <laughs> this bottle of scotch. And so, yeah, they just sit down and acknowledge the futility of their situation and their distrust and share a bottle of scotch. But it's that that moment where he passes it to him and Childs puts his lips on the bottle and you're like, oh, like he could have just infected. So, so there's that moment where they've sort of accepted possible defeat. Yeah. And then that great score comes up. Like you hear that bump bump right as soon as he takes the swig of that oh. whiskey. It's so great. It's such a chef's kiss. It's such a the perfect, I would nev never want anything different from this ending. This ending is, I love such a dark, hopeless ending and just being an acceptance of that's, this is what's happening. And yeah. just let's just get drunk and try to stay warm while we can and see what happens. Well, you obviously haven't seen the television version of this ending then, have you, Jen? I don't think so. I know there's there were several endings shot because this was the original ending, but they tested the movie and they were worried that people weren't going to like the nihilist ending. Well, it's still nihilistic. It's it shows the next day, and you see uh, uh, the again the same husky running away from the camp, and then the narrator says, "Watch the skies." <laughs> that probably wasn't even anything they shot. They probably just took an extra yeah. shot of the Husky and threw that together because that was not shot. Like the other endings that they shot, there was actually a happy ending where McCready is saved. And they shot it? I didn't know that. Apparently, yeah, it was for test screenings. They test McCready's blood and it's um it's not infected. And then there's like another one where it was just like, you don't really know what happens, like yeah. basically without the, the two of them sitting there. But let me ask you guys this. Do you think that child is infected? It's the, the you're asking the kind of question of like in Pulp Fiction, what's in the briefcase? Yeah, I am. I'm asking. <laughs> the whole point is not to have an answer. I've never even thought about it. It's just so perfect. It's, it's like, just so perfect the way it is. I don't want to know. I yeah. don't I don't want to know. I don't care. What if Wilford Brimley came to your house <laughs> and said, listen, I know what the ending of that movie was supposed to be. And let me tell you, Childs is infected. <laughs> Everyone dies. I won. <laughs> I wouldn't want to offend him uh, if if he did come to my house. I did, I wouldn't ask him his age either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. He'd be like, "I'm younger than you, Troy, <laughs> by a good margin." What do you think, Sebastian? Who I think they're both not infected, yeah. and I think they're just going to freeze to death. I think yeah. they won because we're all still here and the thing didn't get us. So, and they never made a sequel, so we never found out. They did make a prequel, 
which also came out and failed. But uh, we will discuss that on another day because I would like to do a follow up to this. Yeah, I, th- I thought we were going to talk about that and I watched that. <laughs> Well, you're going to watch it again in oh. a few months. You're going to be <laughs> so ready, Troy, for, the, for our discussion of the prequel. I didn't tell I told you not to watch it. I thought we were going to bring up all the different versions and everything. But you're right. that It deserves its own discussion. It totally deserves its own episode. So, yeah, this movie came out and it didn't do great. Uh, it cost... million and it ended up grossing I think around 13 when all was said and done so it wasn't really a total failure they probably ended up eking their money back but it really really upset John Carpenter how this was received and you could argue this basically knocked him off of his game because if you think about it before this movie he was kind of unstoppable like he had Halloween He had The Fog, which was also a hit. I know it's not really thought of it that way as being a hit. Escape from New York was considered a a hit. So he was really doing good. Yeah, he should have been after this doing the trajectory was to do massive big budget movies after this. Right. He should have been in the same league as Spielberg, honestly, at this point. That would have been his closest contemporary. But this is his like one of his favorite films. Like he stated that this is one of his favorite films. And so it makes sense that not being well received would definitely hurt things. Yeah, it really hurt his feelings. And the critical response to it, even more so than the box office response, was brutal. It was brutal. They hated it. Like if you go back and look at all the... The critical notices, they're just, they're so harsh on it. They're like, you can't tell any of the characters apart and it's so grim and nihilistic. And Carpenter feels that, you know, it was just too nihilistic for the time. He's like, well, the country was going through a recession and people weren't in the mood to feel bad about things and stuff like that. Again, I, I kind of don't buy all of that. I think there's some truth to that. I think that people were probably primed for a different type of more hopeful entertainment. And we certainly saw a lot of that in the early 80s. The things that were big hits were tended to be kind of optimistic. There were things working against this movie commercially. I think the fact that there's no women in it is kind of a problem. There's nothing for the ladies here at all, except for you, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever feel opted out when you saw this? Did you? I mean, was there ever like a feeling like, oh, I'm kind of missing half of a story here or anything? No, I didn't like, I mean, trust me, there's been other times where I felt that way, but here I was like, I wouldn't want to be here. I don't want to be here with these guys. I don't need to, I don't need to be represented here. You don't want to be reading Windows photo play magazine with him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, these guys can just all be dudes here doing this. Like that, that's fine. Have you guys ever seen that still? uh, There's like a production still where they actually, in McCready's shack, there's an inflatable sex doll yeah that was another scene that was cut like he had a scene and he wasn't having sex with it it was like a goofy thing they had lying around right but it was it would have been even more (laughs) abrasive towards a female audience i mean i don't want to harp on that too much all i'm saying i don't like and i don't feel the movie's uh misogynist i'm just saying that like for most of the women audience of 1982 I don't see a lot here bringing them into the theater, yeah. you know, like. And there's only like really, as we said, there's like 
Kurt Russell is like the sex appeal of the film. Like that's kind of it. Right. There's no other beefcake in the movie. And he's wearing a like a jacket and a stupid hat through most of the movie. So he's sexy yeah. is not part of his costume. It's one of the most unsexy movies of all time. Like when yeah. you think about it, I mean, there's no sex involved in any way, shape or form. There's no talking about sex. There's not even like when they're watching anything on TV or. Yeah. The only woman you see in the entire movie is a game show contestant. Right. Yeah. On a video, on a VHS tape. And there, I think there's like maybe like a calendar on the wall somewhere. It might have been at the Norwegians. I can't remember that has like a girl. There's a couple of there's a couple of things I, I noticed in just in this recent viewing of it. I never saw this before, but I always I always saw that like Windows is reading a, a nudie mag throughout the movie in the rec room on next to the couch. I, somebody had been posting up pages from it. Okay. Which you also see in Alien. There's right. there's nudie mag pictures up. It's kind of just like something you would expect from like a military group out in the field or something, right? It's set dressing. Alien is like for friggin' basic instinct compared <laughs> to this. Like there is way more sex. Yeah. And Alien's not a very sexy movie, no. but they it compared to this, it's like, you know, fifty shades of gray. <laughs> Even the alien itself is like more sex related just in the shape of the alien and then also just of like the the closeness. Sigourney Weaver. In her panties. In her panties getting that ridiculous scene where she's in there. Right, which is just thrown in there for the cheesecake. But Alien has a happy ending. That's right. And I think that, I, I think you're right, like movies with grim nihilistic endings in this time period were either very low budget or art films. Like you just didn't yeah. do it with a a big budget film. Like you kind of had to have a happy ending. I don't think you still do. I honestly can't think, I can't think of a really big budget, like commercial film that ends really like in a dark way, even now. Like I don't, I, I can't think of one. That, you know, it isn't based on a true story or something like that, which you can't help that. You can't rewrite the ending if it's, you know. A, but a, even a, those, you would kind of ease out of it with, sure. with some sort of postscript or something that would say what, what happened. Or, yeah, or like a, a quote or something that's supposed to be uplifting or something that's going to leave people leaving the theater. I, I think people are not comfortable with this type of film. And I, as far as the ending goes, I don't think it really had much to do with women wanting to see it or not i think it's just that people are uncomfortable with such a dark ending which not me <laughs> i'm like i'm always no, here I, for I it i think that's another reason like you know the sequences where there's no music in it during these big effects laden sequences to to just rely on sound effects and stuff there's just so many brave choices in it and brave meaning like it bit him in the ass well i also think there's just some ambiguity to what's going on in terms of how it was sold and marketed i mean look at the poster that's behind you right now troy's got a poster of the thing it's a cool poster it's this it's drew struzan by the way i mean this is also like the artist that did the poster for the thing was still to this day like one of the best movie one-sheet poster artists. Like, they got the best movie poster guy to do the marketing. Right. It's a great poster, but it also doesn't really tell you much. You're just looking at, like, this guy standing there and this light coming out of his head. I think, again, like, they were writing on the success of Alien, and Alien's poster was an egg. 
That was it. With nothing really to do with the rest of the movie. Right. But it's called Alien. And it kind of, that alone sort of tells you what you're in for, where the thing just tells you there's going to be a thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love the title. I wouldn't change it. But I, I think it was a little harder to sell what the thing was. Like, nobody really knew what the monster was going to be. And and even the way the monster is designed, as incredible as it is, it's a shapeless, formless being. Yeah. Whereas, like, you can't make toys out of it. It was a harder sell, you know? And and two weeks before, you have E.T. coming out, and everybody's got, like, E.T. toys and stuff. It just was up against a lot. Yeah, I didn't realize that the the release dates between E.T. and The Thing were that close. So you had the Spielberg movie that came out, which dominated everything. So I wouldn't even say it was like people wanted E.T. It was just like E.T. was dropped on everybody like a bomb. It was just like inescapable. Well, and not to mention, too, it's like just in general, doesn't matter what era decade you're in or whatnot, it has to be a pretty magnificent horror film. Not everyone across the board is going to be blown away like we are or like other horror fans are at these amazing effects. Yeah. Like other people are just going to be grossed out. <laughs> the other big horror movie that came out, which you mentioned earlier, was um, Poltergeist Yeah. this year. And that yep. is a family-friendly yep. movie with a happy ending. Even it's gross. There's gross stuff in it and amazing special effects in there and it's some disturbing graphic scenes but it's family friendly and they save the their daughter at the end so that's what worked well right and that was rated pg or something whereas this was rated r so like teenagers couldn't even technically get in to see this so the whole thing about poltergeist too is about family it's all about the family like loving each other and like having you know it's like that's how they get through this so it's like completely different feel good feelings than where we are with the thing the good news though is time has been kind to the thing and now it is regarded as a classic and john carpenter should feel good about what he did because he ended up winning in the end all right well i'm gonna go pour some jnb into a chess wizard and (laughs) get myself a blood test and build a spaceship under the ice That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Hey, Tim. 
Do you like horror movies? Why, yes I do, Matt. You want to hear two ridiculous horror fanatics discuss all the scary movies that just came out? Wait, you must be talking about our podcast, Happy Horror Time. You bet your ass I am. Oh, clean it up, Matt. No, see, that's the best part. On Happy Horror Time, you get uncensored and unpolished reviews of all things horror. We find all the latest releases, we watch them, and then discuss them in our real talk kind of style. A.K.A. We're crazy! Uh, That too. And don't forget, we also interview classic horror stars and insiders asking them all the questions you've always wanted to know but were afraid to ask. (laughs) Like when Felissa Rose from Sleepaway Camp told us how they found her stand-in for that big reveal at the end. Yep, you gotta listen to find out. Check out Happy Horror Time, a podcast for horror lovers. Or anyone who just wants to have a good time. Because anyone can have a happy horror time.